NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. As the 10th anniversary of the devastating Newtown shooting approaches, we look at how countless gifts sent afterwards became a memorial. And Morocco is the first African nation to make it to the World Cup semifinals. Plus, LeVar Burton wins a Lifetime Achievement Award. No one can hold sway over your mind, your imagination, your dreams, if you can read and be inspired, informed, educated, enlightened, liberated by the written word. It's Sunday, December 11th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. A Libyan man accused of making the bomb that blew up Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 is in U.S. custody. In a brief statement, Scottish officials say the families of Lockerbie victims have been informed. And the Justice Department says the man will make an initial court appearance in a federal court in Washington, D.C., the explosion killed 270 people. The only man convicted of the bombing died in Libya in 2012. He'd been released on compassionate grounds by the Scottish government after his cancer diagnosis. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian drone attacks have left one and a half million people without power in the southern region of Odessa. He spoke in his latest video address to the nation. This is the real attitude of Russia towards Odessa, the attitude towards its residents deliberate bullying, deliberate attempts to bring disaster to the city. Our defenders managed to shoot down 10 of the 15 drones. Ukraine is hitting back. Kiev has reportedly used American-made HIMARS missiles to attack the Russian-occupied city of Motopol. The city is key to the, to the uh, Russian defense of southern Ukraine. Denver, Colorado, migrants have been arriving in the city. have prompted the city's government to take emergency action. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty has more. Denver set up an emergency shelter to house nearly 200 migrants who arrived over the last week. That's after a large group showed up at a Denver homeless shelter. Many of them said they had been bused from El Paso, Texas. Ruben Garcia, director of El Paso nonprofit Annunciation House, said the nation needs networks of support to catch asylum seekers released by Border Patrol. Last Monday, it was almost 1,300 that were released to us. We want to send buses to faith communities in the interior for the reason of helping to spread out the responsibility. Migrant advocates are asking Governor Jared Polis to open permanent shelters around the state. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. The Federal Reserve expected to raise interest rates again at its uh, monetary policy meeting this week. Steve Beckner reports. The Fed has raised the federal funds rate by three-quarters of a percentage point at four straight meetings. But recent hints from Chairman Jerome Powell have Wall Street expecting a half-point move that would take that key short-term rate to a target range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent. What remains uncertain is whether a slower pace of rate hikes means less monetary tightening ahead. Powell has said the Fed has more to do to make rates sufficiently restrictive to reduce inflation to 2% and that rates likely need to go higher and stay higher than once thought. How much higher is a question that will be answered in part when the Fed releases revised rate projections for next year and beyond. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
This is day two of a slight, slightly snowy weekend in Massachusetts. The National Weather Service says the season's first flakes hit the South Shore yesterday, but most of it didn't stick. Today, parts of Massachusetts could see up to five inches of snowfall. Andrew Locanto is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. About three to five inches across western Massachusetts the one to three inch range across the central part of the Commonwealth, you know, an inch or two into Metro West. Moving into greater Boston and into southeastern Massachusetts, um, snow amounts there are looking anywhere basically just an inch or less. Roads could be slushy by tomorrow morning, but Locanto says he does not expect a major impact on the morning commute. Service on the MBTA's Orange Line is back to normal after being riddled with delays yesterday. A broken down train at State Street in the morning turned into a complete service shutdown between North Station and Sullivan Square. Shuttle buses replaced some Orange Line trains for much of the day yesterday. Over the summer, the entire Orange Line was shut down to complete five years' work of work, uh, worth of work in a month. A man hiking with his wife in the White Mountains of New Hampshire died yesterday after he fell off the summit. The New Hampshire Fish and Game Department reports the couple was taking pictures at the summit of Mount Willard in Crawford Notch in Hart's location. The hiker's name has not yet been released. Santa Claus is touching down in Boston by helicopter this afternoon. Santa lands in Columbus Park as part of the North End's 50th annual Christmas parade. Marching bands, clowns, and cartoon characters will take part in the celebration. Parking restrictions and road closures will be in place throughout the North End. In sports, tonight in Las Vegas, the Bruins face the Golden Knights. It is 26 degrees in Boston, and to recap, a chance of some snow around Boston today. Little or no accumulation expected during the day. Highs today in the mid-30s. Tonight, some snow likely and could accumulate up to about one inch. Tomorrow, becoming sunny and highs in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products, too featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and UGG. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. The lineups for the World Cup semifinals are set. The four remaining teams are France, Argentina, Croatia, and history-making Morocco, the first African and majority Arab nation to make it this far. Those teams qualified during a riveting weekend of soccer in Qatar. NPR's Tom Goldman is in Doha and joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Good morning. So for those who missed those really spectacular quarterfinal matches yesterday and the day before, can you give us a recap? Yeah, they were spectacular. In this first Middle Eastern World Cup, Morocco has become this incredible source of pride all over the Arab world. After Morocco beat Portugal yesterday to move into the semis, I talked to Tareg Saad, originally from Sudan. He was so excited. He noted correctly that many African players play for top European teams now. So the individual talent is there. And he said the breakthrough by Morocco shows African Arab nations could compete more with big soccer powers if they invested as much. Here he is. Now football become like an industry. I mean, if you spend the same money, 
that Portugal or Spain, then we will be the, the I mean, we'll be even better than Argentina or Brazil. Now, Morocco, it's not just an inspiring Cinderella story. It's a good team with a tough, tough defense that hasn't given up a goal the entire tournament. The only score against Morocco was an own goal in a game against Canada. On to the rest, starting with Brazil. Weren't they supposed to win this thing? <laughs> they were. They were the favorites. They got caught up in Croatia's grinding defensive web. Brazil took 19 shots on goal. Only one made it through. But they couldn't hold the lead. They gave up the equalizer with just three minutes left in extra time, and they went to penalty kicks, and Croatia dominated. Croatia, remember, finished second in the last World Cup, and it's showing that wasn't a fluke. Argentina and France round out this foursome. What stood out in their matches? Well, Argentina won a physical and really angry match against Netherlands. It was a brawl the referee tried to contain but often didn't. 48 fouls, 16 yellow cards, even superstar Lionel Messi, normally in control on the field, he got caught up in the emotion and lashed out at some on the Dutch team. But Argentina won the fight and Messi now is two wins away from the World Cup title he's never won. And then France, the defending champs, found a way against England. Sadly, England again found a way to lose at a World Cup, this time when top scorer and team captain Harry Kane missed a penalty kick that would have tied the match late. England's a true soccer country, but it remains stuck on 1966, the only year it won the World Cup. Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement of the event, but that took a blow early Saturday in Doha when distinguished American soccer journalist Grant Wall died suddenly at a match that you were at. What's that done to the mood? Well, among journalists, especially those from the U.S., it's been awful. Watching these amazing matches this weekend, there were moments where you'd just shake your head. I didn't know Grant well. Like a lot of people, I knew him mostly through his writing. And in that writing, you could feel how he cared for people. You could feel his passion for soccer and his knowledge about it, something he conveyed so well to both soccer lovers and general sports fans. And that really helped grow the sport's popularity in the U.S. That's NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Thank you so much for talking to us from Doha. You bet. The mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, took place 10 years ago this Wednesday. Letters, artwork, and other objects poured into the town from strangers across the country in the subsequent days. Davis Donovan of member station WSHU reports that many of those items have now ended up in a different form as part of a memorial honoring the tragedy's victims. Newtown was flooded with gifts and support after the shooting. Public Works Director Fred Hurley was one of several town officials and volunteers who had to handle an unexpected logistical challenge in December of 2012. It was flowers, it was teddy bears, hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of snowflakes that were sent in boxes and, and mailbags from all over the country of school children that had traced these snowflakes. They also received at least 65,000 teddy bears and hundreds of thousands of letters. The outpouring was staggering. A lot of the letters and artwork ended up at the town's municipal center. Newtown resident Yoli Moreno walked in one day shortly after the tragedy. 
the entire length of the hall was decorated with banners and quilts and artwork and tables and trays and trays and trays of letters. And, you know, I asked, you know, what are we going to do with this stuff? Moreno became one of dozens of volunteers that helped sort and organize the gifts and letters. But she went even further. This was about bearing witness. She started to take photos of the gifts. Her website, EmbracingNewTown.com, documents some 23,000 cards, letters, and artwork, though it's only a fraction of what came in. She shows me one drawing. Yeah, this a, a picture of, you know, two kids crying. With a little poem underneath it. We know you may be sad. You may have lost a friend. You have every right to cry. We all know it's hard to say goodbye. <laughs> I totally crying this stuff. But there was much more than letters and art. You know, you get a pallet of bicycles in or a pallet of sleds. That's Newtown's former tax assessor, Chris Kelsey. He helped the town find a warehouse to keep a lot of the gifts. Newtown gave away a lot of them to shelters, schools, and hospitals. But they offered items first to the families who lost loved ones. Chris Kelsey remembers one of those families, a dad who came in with his son to the warehouse right before Christmas. But they weren't able to do any of their Christmas shopping because... You know, life had been turned upside down for everybody. For teddy bears, we really hadn't started sorting them. We were just piling them up. Um, His son was actually able to climb the pile of teddy bears and grab onto the roof rafters. And there were also all those roadside memorials that had sprung up all over town. The town had to make a difficult decision about those, too. What do you do with the hundreds of thousands of things that are on your street corners, the signs and the teddy bears and the flowers and the vases and the artwork? That has to be dealt with. That's Pat Lodra. She was Newtown's first selectman, the town's top elected official. This was December, and the weather was taking a turn. We didn't want it to just start looking awful as a very sad reminder. We wanted the beauty of it to be sustained and remain in, the, in people's minds. But we knew with, you know, we had snow and rain. We had all that weather stuff. We needed to deal with the reality of that stuff. Right around Christmas, Lodra asked the world to please stop sending gifts. And then she announced many of them would be turned into what she called sacred soil to be used in a future memorial to the tragedy. Essentially, they'd be cremated, including the roadside memorials. A few nights after Christmas, officials drove around town to gather them up. All of these items, the candles, the cards, the animals, anything that was out there in the snow. In some cases, we had to literally dig the items out of the snow. Public Works Director Fred Hurley says it was mostly a quiet night until one woman saw them taking down a banner. And she got very emotional about it, that you can't take my banner and throw it away. And and we explained again what ultimately we were going to do, that we were going to take all of these memorial items, they were going to be cremated, and they were going to go in forever to the uh, memorial. And and that, that put her mind at peace. They eventually took many of the leftover gifts to an industrial disposal facility. Yoli Moreno was there, the volunteer who helped document many of the cards and letters. We watched footage of the burn together. Here's like teddy bears and flags. And I can see my boxes of letters. You become really familiar with a lot of it. It's very surreal. It it was surreal then and even more surreal now that I'm looking at it. Like, and you look through this window and you can see it burning and then it comes out into a box. What remained was a gray, sandy powder, what they call the sacred soil. Fred Hurley shows me a sample. There's not a lot to describe about it. 
It's not like there's a lot of elegant colors, but it just really looks like a, a gray sand, which is what's left over uh, after the cremation. And that's metals and cards and teddy bears and snowflakes all together. The sacred soil waited years to become a prominent part of Newtown's memorial until the memorial opened last month. It's on a bucolic site, the home of a former boys club. It's down the road from Sandy Hook Elementary School, which was torn down and rebuilt in 2016. A round pool of water encircled by 26 flat slabs, each bearing the name of someone who died, 20 children and six educators. In the center of the pond is a single tree. A mother and daughter from Sandy Hook placed a red rose on each slab shortly after the memorial opened. I actually can't believe it's been 10 years. That's Christine Metzger. We wanted to come visit it, even though it's hard. Um, even when we went to the Sandy Hook School when it was first built, the new one, it was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that something could happen like this in our town. And the sacred soil? As you enter the grounds and walk down the path to the memorial, there's a stone box inscribed with words from President Barack Obama when he came to Newtown after the tragedy. I am very mindful that mere words cannot match the depths of your sorrow, nor can they heal your wounded hearts. I can only hope it helps for you to know that you're not alone in your grief that our world, too, has been torn apart. That all across this land of ours, we have wept with you. Newtown has no plans for an official ceremony on December 14th, the day that marks 10 years since the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Davis Donovan in Connecticut. And this reporting is featured in WSHU's podcast, Still Newtown. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, this is Green Line Extension Eve. The MBTA's new branch through Somerville and Medford opens tomorrow morning. And we'll have a conversation with the Medford mayor. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. It's 27 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow today, little or no accumulation expected and highs in the mid 30s. Then tonight, some snow likely and that snow could accumulate up to about an inch. Tomorrow, becoming sunny and temperatures in the mid 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or DonFoot.com. Beauty on time. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The Justice Department is confirming that a man it's charged in the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, is in U.S. custody. The DOJ says he is expected to make his initial appearance in federal court in Washington, D.C. The man is suspected of making the bomb that destroyed the plane. Messy travel conditions on the West Coast today. A storm is bringing rain to the California coast and another helping of snow to the Sierra Nevada. More than 250 miles of the mountains remain under a 
winter storm warning. And Vice President Kamala Harris is in Southern California, where she is preparing to swear in Karen Bass as mayor of Los Angeles. Bass won the post in last month's elections and will become the city's first woman mayor and second black person to lead Los Angeles. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows, available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thousands in North Carolina have regained power in their homes after a gunman's attack on an electrical substation left residents without access to power, heat, and in some cases, water for days. Threats to electrical power grids in the U.S. are gaining more attention in light of the attack, including ones in Washington and Oregon last month. We're joined now by Errol Southers, professor of national and homeland security at the University of Southern California. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. There was an attack in North Carolina that we mentioned. There notably was an attack on a California substation back in 2013. Why are gunmen able to take out power grids so easily? The grid is extremely large. It has about 6,400 power plants across the country, some 55,000 substations, and over 450,000 miles of high-voltage transmission lines serviced by 3,000 companies. But because you're looking at a space in terms of acreage across the country that's so large, it's extremely challenging to monitor and protect, and many of these places are very remote. And so officers have to get there. And by the time they do, the attackers are already gone. So, I mean, the investigations in North Carolina are ongoing. And you worked in counterterrorism at the FBI. Um, Is there a reason to believe that these attacks on critical infrastructure are acts of extremism? Absolutely, there's a reason. The whole notion here is that general feeling against of those individuals who are against the United States government is the notion that the government can't protect you as a citizen or resident of this country. So now I've shut your power off and it's December and you have no heat and you have no light and that happens for hours or days. So what people start to do is lose confidence in the system. When this first started to come about years ago from extremist groups, the notion was that they hoped they could trigger a response by the government of invoking, in some instances, martial law. And some even went as far as to suggest that they could trigger a race war so that it puts the nation in a state of chaos. And then they could go out, meaning these adversaries, go out and take advantage of that chaos and wreak havoc across the country. How concerned should the average American be? I don't know what you could do to raise their level of concern until they become victimized because that's just the general culture of this country. I can tell you for a fact that the Department of Homeland Security and other 
protective agencies in the country right now are certainly paying attention to this because as we say in the intelligence community, coincidence takes a lot of planning. The fact that this happened now, close to the week of the midterms, after we've had a contested election, and in this case of, of North Carolina, being in close proximity to a drag show that was happening that week um, nearby, in the county nearby. So all of those things put together, it spelled out to someone like me that there's a concentrated effort here to take advantage of the situation, whether it's the political climate or other things that they can leverage to recruit and bring, if you will, attention to their movement. You know, as, as someone who has been studying this issue, like what are some ways that substations could be fortified against attack? Can you put, uh, you know, some type of structure around the substation so making them harder to shoot? The average sniper rifle has a range of about 600 meters. A 50 caliber rifle has a range of 1,500 meters. 1,500 meters uh, works out to some over 4,000 feet. So now you have to decide if we're going to put up a perimeter, how far away do we put it? Now you're putting a perimeter in a space that you don't even control or own. So what I'm saying to you is that it's almost literally impossible to protect against this vulnerability. And these attackers know that. Are there ways that residents could prepare themselves in case something happens or, you know, a similar event happened, like what happened in North Carolina? Great question. And again, Aisha, what you're speaking to now is just general emergency preparedness that every American should be engaged in anyway, whether it's a fire, a flood, earthquake, tornado, hurricane, those emergency supplies, those generators, enough food for a week, Cash, by the way, because one of the things that people don't realize is when the grid goes down, the ATMs go down as well. So cash, you know, water, first aid supplies, all those things that you would need in the event of a natural disaster are the things you would need if we lost the grid due to some man-enabled attack. That's Errol Southers, professor of national and homeland security at the University of Southern California. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. WNBA star Brittany Griner returned home safely last week after being detained for 10 months in Russia. But other Americans are still being held captive there. Later today on All Things Considered, the story of a teacher from Pittsburgh who's serving a 14-year sentence in a hard labor penal colony. Listen live at this station's website or at NPR.org. The man behind a one-of-a-kind Hollywood career gets celebrated big time tonight in Los Angeles. Your name is Toby. You're going to learn to say your name. Let me hear you say it. Kunta. Kunta Quinte. I see where you're going. We ship down, then kick hard into Warp 9. Yeah, come back, fight. Woo-wee! Can we do it, Jordy? Ask me after it's done, sir. Welcome to Rosie's, an authentic roadside diner. I like to sit here at the counter where I can watch the whole show because one of the best things about being at a diner is the people. You never know who's going to drop by. In fact, who drops by is what causes all the trouble in this book, the robbery at the Diamond Dog Diner. 
That is the one and only LeVar Burton, star of Roots, Reading Rainbow, and Star Trek, The Next Generation. And as of tonight, he'll be a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show, none other than LeVar Burton. Thank you so much. So what does winning this award mean to you? I'm not sure you actually win the Lifetime Achievement Award. I think, you know, you hang around long enough and they think, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Why not? I mean, when you you look back on your career as, you know, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, I, I would assume does that. Reading Rainbow was a huge part of it. And a lot of very serious actors on adult shows and miniseries don't necessarily star on kids shows. Was there ever any hesitation with you thinking, oh, I want to be in Hollywood. I want to be taken seriously. I don't want to do a kid's show. No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. No hesitation. One of the reasons why I was so eager to do Reading Rainbow was um, having just come out of an experience with Roots, having been my first job as an actor, and seeing just the sheer power of the medium of, of television at work, right? In eight nights of television, the this nation was transformed around our idea of what we mean when we talk about chattel slavery in this country. And so the opportunity was presented to me to, to sort of harness some of that power to foster a love of kids who are just learning how to read, how cracking the code, cement a relationship with them for life through this medium of television. It was counterintuitive, but damn it, it worked. <laughs> yeah. You built such a relationship with children who felt like you were talking to them, you were their friend. Did you realize at the time when you were doing it that it would have such an impact? I was talking to my son, and he was the proxy mm. for the audience. And so my intent was honest. It was genuine. I wanted to communicate something that I dearly love, appreciate, and and believe to be the foundation of discovering your highest purpose in life. If you can read in at least one language, then you have the, the tool to educate yourself. No one can hold sway over your mind, your imagination, your dreams. If you can read and be inspired, informed, educated, enlightened, liberated, by the written word. I know that before you became an actor, you were going to be a priest. Can you tell? Well, first of all, (laughs) I can can tell. You were kind of ministering, right? Do you consider acting to be a type of ministry? Fred Rogers and I had that conversation often. It was, uh, I think, the, the field upon which he and I saw eye to eye. And what do you think makes it into the difference between looking at this is a role or this is a job and this is a ministry? Well, it's tied to my purpose. And I know Fred felt the same way. And I believe that part of my purpose here is to tell stories that uplift and enlighten. And I I look at it this way. I have been able to express the entirety of the Black experience in this country from Kunta to Jordi. And LeVar is in the middle of that continuum. The breadth of humanity that I've been able to represent for in an age where representation in this country, in this culture has become such an important thing to ponder, contemplate and discuss. Mm -hmm. What an honor. 
I'm going to go there because you brought up Jordy LaForge, Star Trek. My husband is the biggest Star Trek fan. You know, when I told him I was talking to you, he said, well, <clears throat> you know, Jordy LaForge has one of the best arcs in television. And to understand it, he was like, you really need to watch all seven seasons. <laughs> so, <he> was, <laughs> so I was like, okay. Yeah. Anyway, he is a big Star Trek fan. And he had a question, and I kind of I kind of tweaked it a little bit, but it's kind of based off what you just said. It's the idea you've played Kunta Kente in Roots. That's mm-hmm. about America's past. You've yes. played Jordy LaForge on Star Trek, a series about a vision of the future. Like, right. what did both of those very different characters teach you about how we treat the past and also about how we think about the future? The most important thing to me about both of those stories are that they acknowledge and celebrate the history, right? The presence Mm -hmm. of black people. Mm. We have been written out of American history in many regards. And the history that America tells itself about who we are has always been biased and reductive and disrespectful for the most part. And so these stories have importance to me because they are much more representative and reflective of who we are. Stories and books can open minds and give voice to that thing that is ineffable, that thing that is unspeakable. Right. Right. Thinking about all the kids who were able to have dream of all these possibilities for themselves because of books they heard on Reading Rainbow. Is that the ultimate legacy? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. I think the most important work I will have done in this lifetime is Reading Rainbow in terms of the impact. You know, my mother was an English teacher. I inherited my love of reading and the written word from her. And, you know, it would have been illegal for me just a couple of generations ago to know how to read. It was a crime punishable by whipping or worse. Yes, yeah. And to have grown up and become an icon, a symbol for literature and children's literacy and and advocacy in in this realm, (sighs) only in America. LeVar Burton, thank you so very much. I really appreciate you coming and speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you very much. LeVar Burton receives a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award later today. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. After years of hearings, legal action, 
planning and delays. The MBTA's Green Line extension into Medford is finally about to become a reality. Trains start rolling at 4.45 a.m. tomorrow. Medford Mayor Brianna Lungo-Kern credits the unwavering fight waged by neighborhood groups. We thank them because of their hard work. Transportation has been enhanced in Medford and Somerville, and it's going to be such a positive impact for not only South Medford and the hillside, but our entire community as well as Somerville. People need public transportation for to go to school, for work, medical appointments, to get simple necessities like groceries. And the fact that this is coming to Medford uh, is pretty amazing. There's a constant tension between the great public good of public transit and the great public good of affordable housing with arguments about the displacement of people that public transit should serve, but that once public transit arrives, sometimes those people are displaced as prices go up. How is Medford addressing this complicated set of issues? Sure. I think the positive is that there's going to be developers that want to build um, transit-oriented development along this green line, and we welcome that. Um, I think we've prepared and are continuing to prepare for that, and we have a goal to help with the housing crisis. And by that, I mean we help build more affordable housing. We did complete a housing production plan, and what we need to concentrate on and what we plan on concentrating on is to make sure one way or another, that this there's an affordable component to any housing that is built. How has the Green Line extension already affected real estate prices and rents in Medford? I think real estate prices have been going up for several years, especially when you you first talked about the delays, and there's been many. I think increases have already started and will continue to go up. House prices have skyrocketed. In Somerville, around Union Square, where it was known that the Green Line extension was going, you know, there's all sorts of stories about crazy rent hikes and and the cost of housing. So Medford's kind of had this, you know, ability to see the future by looking next door to Somerville. And you've just mentioned some. I'm curious about what else Medford is doing to um, mitigate some of the less positive impacts. We are doing all we can to negotiate with developers and to make sure that we are that we get all types of affordability as a component we're going to continue do, to do that with any developer that wants to build along the green line we, so i think it's just continuing to be creative and to push for the building of, of affordable units not just these luxury apartments that not everybody can afford that's not you know what we need. There's a housing crisis, but it's an affordable housing crisis, and we're going to do all we can to build units that people of all income levels can afford. How does a Green Line extension coming to Medford factor into the city's planning in terms of not only traffic, but also bike lanes and sidewalks and other pedestrian amenities? We have been trying to enhance um, our infrastructure. We definitely take that into account with any new reconstruction of any roads and sidewalks. Um, but we also, it's going to help a great deal with our climate action and adaptation plan. And we want to be, you know, reduced to zero emissions by 2050, just like the state. So public transit in general, never mind a station like the GLX two stops in Medford um, is helping with that goal, and it's it's moving us forward on, on so many levels. How will this change the culture of Medford? 
I think it's going to change Medford in a positive way environmentally development. I think it's going to attract new businesses here in Medford. I think it's going to help us with the staffing shortages in in different industries because people are going to have transportation to be able to get to our businesses here in Medford and Somerville. We just need to continue on this path. We, We also have already been advocating to extend it to Route 16 and to do an environmental study, which is the first next step, because we feel that this is going to have nothing but a positive impact on our community. Medford Mayor Brianna Lungo-Kern plans to ride one of the first Green Line trains to make its way through her city tomorrow morning. Oh yeah, Medford, Massachusetts. Oh yeah, what a great community. I like Medford because Medford is such a nice place to be. They got Main Street, they got High Street, they got Forest Street, they got Salem Street, they got We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here to say thank you to everybody who gave so generously during our end-of-the-year fundraiser. You helped us surpass our goal, which is incredible. You know, the late, great jazz poet Gil Scott Heron once said, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And that's exactly what you did. Thank you again, and have a wonderful holiday season. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's no surprise that these days, comic book movies dominate the box office. The Riddler is asking for you. The killer left this for the Batman. You are not like the other gods of kill. Because I have something worth fighting for. And my entire family is gone! Have I not given everything? These powers are not a gift, but a curse. Just a few clips from The Batman, Thor, Love and Thunder, Wakanda Forever, and Black Adam, all comic book movies that came out this year. And just like the blockbusters, the comic books they're based on are big business. But getting into them, especially if you're a new reader, can be a lot with so many titles and storylines and characters and all sorts of things. Joshua Yale is a senior editor and producer at the games and entertainment website, IGN.com. He writes about comics and joins us now. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, back in the day, you really only had comic book stores, but now there are lots more options. 
when you try to get a comic, you say, I want an X-Men comic or a Batman comic, there's all sorts of arcs and different types of storylines. So, like, do you think you have to go to a specific issue number or a specific issue that, like, at the beginning of a plot to get started? Or can you just pick up anyone and just get started? I would say, could you get into a TV show? Uh, in the middle, <laughs> I hate just, that. If, in the middle, if you don't like that, you can just start at the beginning. You know, if, if you just go find whatever character you're interested in, number one, start there, right? That's an mm-hmm. easy jumping on point. A lot of comic books have been rebooted over the years. So yeah. there's actual multiple number one issues. Like there's several amazing Spider-Man number ones, yeah. <laughs> for yes. example. Yeah. Um, you really could just look at the cover art and see which one appeals to you and then just jump in starting with that one. And then if you want more, of course, there's online guides and stuff that can point you in the direction of where to go. Because you're right, there's decades of continuity and many different like versions and storylines and, and universes to follow. But really just pick up the one that, that appeals to you and start with that one. Okay, so let's say you've seen the latest comic book release in theaters like Black Panther or Black Adam, and you want to check one of those out. Like, is there a good way to get started for those particular movies that are just recently out? Yeah, when a character you know, has a big movie coming up or a TV show, the publishers know this. And so they, they come prepared. They reprint a lot of their best stories and collections. Mm. They often will include the character in big events. You know, Black Adam was just a part of the, the big dark crisis event going on at DC. Ooh, um, he okay. just happened to be the one character who survived uh, a horrible <laughs> calamity and the world needs to rely on him. You know, And then they often uh, publish new material, like brand new material, tells you everything you need to know for people who just met the character in the movie and want to read more. Oh, well, that is very helpful. And we should explain that comics like Marvel or DC, they do these big events, which I love to get into, and that's kind of how I would get into it. And so comics and graphic novels are really a visual medium, so we can't really have you read us some lines from it because you need to see it. But I would like you to suggest maybe a few can't-miss titles. I guess first, maybe a few from the superhero genre. You know, my favorite thing to come out of Marvel in the past decade is actually the comics that inspired the movie Thor Love and Thunder, the the fourth Thor movie. It's by this writer, Jason Aaron, who teamed up with a lot of incredible artists, you know, like Asad Ribic and Russell Dodderman and a few others, and told this epic Thor story over the span of many years. And that eventually led to Jane Foster becoming Thor uh, Mm -hmm. and then Thor reclaiming the hammer eventually. It's such an incredible epic story and it's very funny lots of cool characters uh so i would definitely recommend that one from marvel from dc if you're looking for just like a quick classic you know pick up the the batman story the dark knight returns you know doesn't get much better than that but what about some of the alternative genres sure one of the most popular comic books is saga by brian k vaughn and fiona staples And it starts with the concept of these two alien races, sort of a Romeo and Juliet story. And it's a blend of like sci-fi and fantasy. And it's incredibly adult, but also very real and grounded, yet also some of the craziest things you've ever seen. It's a wonderful story. It's one of the few comics that has gotten more popular as it goes along. Mm. And it's a unique comic book experience because the creators have often said they don't want to adapt it to a movie or a television show. So if you do want to get in on this awesome, you know, comic book that everyone's 
been obsessing over for the past you know, several years, you do have to go read it in a comic book form. That is Joshua Yale of the games and entertainment website, IGN.com. Thank you so much for joining us. I love talking about comics. Thank you. Me too. The English musician Youngblood doesn't shy away from going to dark places in his songs. Youngblood's genre-blending songs deal with self-loathing, sexual fluidity, and learning how to love, and they've earned him international popularity. Just a warning, this conversation does touch on suicide. He recently released a self-titled album and joined us earlier this fall to talk about it. The first song on his album is called The Funeral, and in it he sings about dancing at his own funeral. In a world where I feel like I'm being buried alive, I just said, you know what, I'm going to write a song where I list off every single thing I'm insecure about in three minutes because I want people to be able to put this song on. And if you feel powerless and if you feel alone and if you feel judged, if you're okay with, with, with everything you don't like about yourself and you say it first, nobody else can say anything. You take the power back. I'm here at my funeral and I'm dancing at it, even if nobody's here, even if nobody's watching. And it's that metaphor of self-love. That's the beauty within it. I wanted to give people a soundtrack to, to feel accepted by the most important person in the world themselves. Your song, Memories, you open up a bit about some of the pain that you felt. I had quite a turbulent upbringing, you know what I mean? In my household, there was quite a lot of abuse, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a song that any kind of trauma you feel, and I wanted to get 10,000 people in a room and allow them to scream it at the top of their lungs so they can share the burden with each other. You know, listening to your album, like the music, it's very upbeat, it's very energized. I wanted to internalize and like reflect my personality because I see myself as someone who's confidently insecure. I have a lot of anxiety inside myself. I, I'm quite bad at communicating and I'm really insecure, but I'm really loud and I'm really energetic. And I wanted to kind of reflect that in my music. That's why I self-titled it. I was like, this is Youngblood, this is what it's about. I needed this defiant yet euphoric sound. I think when you like find the sound of what your next album is going to be, it almost has to find you first. You know what I mean? You, it's like that bit in Harry Potter. It's like the one chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. You know what I mean? It almost got to fall in your lap. In this album, you definitely go deep into some of you very painful things. You have lyrics that deal with thoughts of suicide. Don't leave me alone. You've been open in the past about the fact that you've attempted suicide. What do you want people to take from those sorts of lyrics? And are, are you ever concerned that listeners might misinterpret what you're saying? People need truth. Music lacks truth at the minute, in my opinion. A lot of people have dark thoughts. And the world tells us to bury them. 
and to not talk about them because, again, it might make you look a bit strange. But that's the most dangerous thing in the world. I want to be a vehicle for people's expression. If you are feeling sad, if you're feeling dark, if you're having extremely dark thoughts, I spoke about them, I put them in my music and it suppressed them. It allows me to let them go because I, I let them out. Let's talk about I Cry Too. I mean, it's supposed to be maybe a critique of mainstream culture as you see it. What was so beautiful about this song is it started about me looking at me mate. He was finding it really hard to express his emotions and like, such is still a massive stigma in males, you know what I mean? And I sat opposite him and like, listen, it's all right. And I'm sat there, I'm like, listen, it's all right. I, I go through this. I understand where you're coming from. With me, everyone, I've I had an opinion on my sexuality and my gender because, again, I, t I tell the truth. Like, I am not going to sit here and, and dance around or say just about enough that my publicist wants me to. And I found myself get a turning point through this song because I was telling my mate that it's all right to express himself. And I'm like, well, that's me. When you talk about your truth, I know you've said that you're pansexual. Do, do you, like, is that part of where you felt like you got pushback? Yeah, if you go like, this is where I'm at, and I'm proud of that. It's like, no, you're not. If someone says that something and wants to express themselves in a certain way, I think that should be uplifted and celebrated. And that's why I put that lyric in, is that everybody online keeps saying, I'm not really gay. Well, I'll start dating men when they go to therapy. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to take the piss out of it instead of letting it hurt me. this album is about struggle and pain where do you find the light in the music that's why it's got this energy it's like it's all right it's painful and struggling it's strange it's bizarre it's the world is so crazy sometimes it can all for everyone it's not like i'm sad i believe this is going to kind of be the album that connects to the most people because i want to talk about real life about the drama of, hello, I'm, I'm an emo kid from the north of England. This is about a 35-year-old person who works in Starbucks. This is about a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. The, the, you know what I mean? It's about every single one of us feeling this mad thing called life. You know what I mean? It's like I wanted to write a record that transcended beyond what I already have. I wanted to write an album about light at the end of the tunnel. We spoke with Youngblood about his self-titled album earlier this year when it came out. And for anyone experiencing thoughts of self-harm, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number is 988. <laughs> 
So Wednesday is, of course, a day of the week. It's also the name of a new Netflix show about the Adams family and their daughter. Wednesday is certainly a unique name. I'm guessing it was the day of the week you were born. I was born on Friday the 13th. Her name comes from a line from my favorite nursery rhyme. Wednesday's child is full of woe. I mean, it's super popular. It's like the most popular show on Netflix right now. That's Carly Hartsman. She's part of Another Wednesday, a band out of Asheville, North Carolina. Hartsman told us why she named the band Wednesday when she started making music in 2018. So I wanted to go with something that was kind of like a word you could have no opinions about. At the time, she wasn't concerned that her band had bad SEO, search engine optimization. I didn't even realize it would become a career or anyone would even care to search it. But now it's just that much harder to find Wednesday's music. Search on Google, the Netflix show pops up. On Spotify or Apple Music, the show's soundtrack. And if that's not complicated enough, there's another Netflix show, Jenny and Georgia, that's got this scene with a guy in a t-shirt that says Wednesday. You've never heard of the band Wednesday? Yeah, I have. They have that one song. No, they don't. They don't exist. I just made them up. Grabbed the first shirt I saw this morning. Whatever. The fact that we were a band was something you could find out really easily. And the fact that they didn't just like look it up really quick just to check before claiming that the band did not exist. I mean, I think it's hilarious. And in a twist, that's good for the band. Hartsman says that scene made Jenny and Georgia fans actually look up whether there is a band named Wednesday. But if people do have a hard time finding Wednesday the band, Hartsman doesn't mind. It's good, because I don't want to know stuff people are saying about my music. Because, you know, it just takes one negative thing to, like, ruin your day. Um, so I literally get nothing. Because, like, the algorithm cannot feed me my own stuff. Like, it, it can't track that word for me because it's everywhere. But Hartsman also knows that it could be worse. My friend has a band right now that's just the at sign. And that is literally the hardest searchable band name that I think exists right now. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. This is NPR. 
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for spending the weekend with 90.9 WBUR. The latest news headlines start the hour and check back for all things considered this afternoon at 5. Stay connected with the WBUR mobile app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema shook up Washington this week when she switched from Democrat to Independent. We break it down. And we have reporting from Kherson, Ukraine, which was liberated, but tensions remain. Plus, Bora Chung's anthology of fairy tales now in English for the first time. I never imagined my book would reach anywhere outside Korea. So th this is all very unreal to me. And the puzzle. It's Sunday, December 11th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Authorities on both sides of the Atlantic are confirming that a man the U.S. has linked to the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, is in U.S. custody. Scottish authorities say families of Lockerbie victims have been informed, and the Justice Department says he will make an initial court appearance in Washington, D.C. The man is suspected of making the bomb that destroyed the plane. Public health officials are revisiting the idea of wearing masks indoors as three highly contagious respiratory viruses sweep the country. NPR's Juliana Kim has more. Over the past few weeks, there's been a surge in COVID, the flu, and a respiratory virus known as RSV. The triple threat has been overwhelming hospitals, so much so that some states like Washington and Oregon have been urging indoor masking. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has also been recommending masking for a tenth of counties in the U.S., the CDC relies on its COVID-19 community-level map to determine an area's risk of infection. As of Friday, nearly every state has at least one county with a high risk, except Hawaii, Maine, New Hampshire, and the District of Columbia. Juliana Kim, NPR News. More than 250 miles of the Sierra Nevada is under a winter storm warning, with up to six feet of snow expected in some areas. Uh, NPR's Marie Andrusevich has more. The storm has already knocked over trees, shut down roads, and triggered avalanche warnings from Northern California to Lake Tahoe. 
Yesterday afternoon, state highway officials said up to six inches of snow was falling every hour. They also reported multiple vehicle spinouts. A 70-mile stretch of U.S. Interstate 80 from Colfax, California to the Nevada state line was shut down because of zero visibility. Parts of U.S. Route 50 are also closed due to avalanche control. Winter storm warnings will be in effect until early tomorrow, according to the National Weather Service. Maria Andrusevich, NPR News. Protesters across the country demanding that Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack revoke permits for an 88-mile railroad that would connect oil fields in Utah to existing rail lines. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander has the latest. An environmental impact statement predicts up to 350,000 barrels of crude oil would travel along the new railroad in northeast Utah every day. Jonathan Godis is the mayor of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, a small city on the Colorado River. He criticized the limited scope of the study at a protest on Saturday. The impacts were only considered on the 88 miles from the uh, spot where they're extracting the oil to the main line. They didn't look at any of the other impacts from that point to the Gulf of Mexico truly. Glenwood Springs is one of 10 counties and municipalities in Colorado that signed an amicus brief requesting a court overturn the railway's approval. If that doesn't work, protesters hope Vilsack will use his authority to stop the project. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Zander. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA's Green Line extension begins full operation tomorrow. One transit advocate puts it this way. It's a victory 32 years in the making. Stacy Rubin of the Conservation Law Foundation points out that the trains will begin rolling through Somerville into Medford almost exactly 32 years after the foundation got the state to agree to expand the Green Line. Rubin says her group now wants the Green Line to extend even further into Medford. We are eager for the state, for the Department of Transportation to do an assessment and figure out what are the costs and benefits of completing the extension all the way out to Route 16, which was a, a long planned promise. Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne says the new service will improve the lives of residents. We get cleaner air. We are anticipating that there will be uh, about 45, or the projections, 45,000 less vehicle trips per day. The first train of the Green Line Medford branch starts rolling tomorrow at 4.45 a.m. Two college students from Massachusetts are among the four people killed in a car crash in Maine. They were all students at Maine Maritime Academy and were driving in Castine, Maine early yesterday when their car crashed into a tree and burst into flames. A 22-year-old from Rockport and a 20-year-old from Aquino were killed. Three students survived the crash. Crowds in Revere celebrated after Morocco pulled out a World Cup win yesterday. Morocco beat Portugal one to nothing in Qatar. That marks the first time an African or Arab team has reached the semifinals. State and local police shut down Revere Beach Parkway so Morocco fans could celebrate safely. Tonight in Las Vegas, the Bruins face the Golden Knights. It is 27 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow, little or no accumulation expected during the day today, and highs in the mid-30s. Some snow likely tonight and could accumulate up to about an inch. Tomorrow, becoming sunny and highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema rocked the political world two days ago when she announced she'd leave the Democratic Party to become an independent. The move's not expected to matter much on Capitol Hill right now, but it could in 2024. To explain, we now turn to NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Good morning, Sue. Hey, Aisha. So, I mean, this may be a little bit harsh, but at least according to the polls, cinema's not well-liked back home in Arizona, at least politically. I don't know about personally, but why not? <laughs> Like and, and why would changing her affiliation help her? Well, harsh but fair, I think. You know, <laughs> she's been this unique figure in the Senate, and she has a voting record and a series of positions that have really frustrated Democrats in particular. Things like her opposition to ending the filibuster in the Senate to make it easier for Democrats to pass legislation, and also things like opposing tax raises on the wealthiest Americans to help pay for part of Biden's agenda. She, she opposed that and derailed part of the president's agenda earlier this year. So she's won no favor among Democrats. And in a very polarized country, you're not going to have particularly high approval among the opposing party either. So in Arizona, a state that's pretty evenly divided by Democratic Republican and independent voters, she's upside down with all of them. She has higher disapproval ratings than approval ratings. I think that's important context to look at this decision by. I don't think it comes at a time of particular political strength from her. Uh, it's happening at a time of political weakness. And, and I think in some ways it needs to be viewed through that lens. So, I mean, I've heard that if Cinema runs as an independent in 2024, and, and she hasn't announced yet, um, that there's concern that she would hand the election to Republicans by splitting the Democratic vote. Like, how would that work since she's so unpopular among those core Democratic constituencies? I mean, you already have people on the progressive left. Their attitudes towards her was good reddance, get out of the party. She was also likely to face a Democratic primary, regardless of uh, whether she had stayed in the party or not. So the chance Chances that Democrats don't put up a candidate seem very, very unlikely, considering how much dislike they have towards cinema. So, as you said, you know, you put up a Democrat, she runs as an independent, and they pretty clearly split the the vote on that side of the aisle, and it makes it pretty easy for a Republican candidate to win with the plurality of votes. Now, as we've seen in Arizona, uh, candidate quality matters a lot. Republicans have to put up somebody that could win, but any you know reasonably viable candidate with cinema and a Democrat on the ballot would probably be pretty heavily favored in 24. And I think that's why you saw a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill re responding to this with what I described as quiet glee. Mm. Okay, so a little closer on the time horizon, uh, Congress is facing another deadline to pass a big spending bill to fund the government by this coming Friday. It's like living check to check kind of. <laughs> so will this be one of those short term extenders? Or, and, and, and will lawmakers ever get back to regular order that people talk about sometimes? Oh, it's not a good time to be a regular order fan, so I wouldn't <laughs> get your hopes up. Uh, I, I, shutdown talk is very minimal. It's not on the horizon, but uh, they have a lot to negotiate still. They, have, they want to try and pass a year-long funding bill. They can't really agree on the details. And so it's very likely they're going to need a short-term punt. One of the key things at issue right now is President Biden's request for more money for Ukraine. He asked for about $37 billion from Congress. There is increasing resistance, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, to keep funding the, the war effort there. Uh, I do think there's talk of maybe trying to put something in the legislation that would give Congress more oversight or get more reports on how this money is being spent. But 
that's one of the key sticking issues. I think if they don't resolve it by Friday, they'll come up with another short-term solution. But if all else fails, Democrats are saying they'll just do a short-term funding gap into next year and let the new House Republican majority figure it out. So a separate defense budget bill has already passed the House, um, you know, and the annual legislation sets the agenda for the Defense Department. There is a new system for prosecuting sexual assault and other crimes like murder in the military. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, has been fighting for this change. Here's what she says. They now have a a system of justice that is worthy of their sacrifice, that we now have a system of justice that is independent, that is transparent and accountable, that uh, will hopefully um, reduce or be free of bias. Sue, in about 30 seconds we have left, like how were accusations handled in the past and what does this new policy do? Well, this is a result of basically a 10-year fight by Kirsten Gillibrand. And what it does is it takes commanders out of the process. People no longer have to report sexual assault claims. It would go to something called a special trial council with trained prosecutors. Fewer than a quarter of sexual assault victims in the military have come forward, and they think that this will make it a process that's more fair to the people that serve. NPR's Susan Davis, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Ukrainian army liberated the southern city of Kherson a month ago. Local residents celebrated the victory with optimism and tears of joy. But peace has not really returned. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports that Russian troops are less than a mile away and continue to shell the city every day. Ihor Yuptashenko hears the booms of missiles every day outside his pizza restaurant. Back when Kherson was occupied by Russian troops, he says he used to welcome that sound. It was like a lullaby for us, because Ukrainian forces were targeting the places where the occupants were. We heard these explosions and knew they hit Russian soldiers and destroyed Russian equipment. Last month, Ukrainian forces drove Russian soldiers to the other side of the Dnipro River. And from there, the Russians are now shelling Kherson repeatedly. Yevtushenko says his neighbors and customers are fleeing in droves. He sits in this cold, dark restaurant next to a plate filled with pieces of shrapnel instead of his spicy pepperoni pizza. The thing is, the situation here has actually gotten worse since liberation. You never know when a missile will hit your apartment, your shop, your neighborhood, your road. You can't drive from place to place without worrying what will happen next. Local leaders in Kherson estimate that its population has shrunk by more than a half since the Russian invasion in February. Many escaped during the occupation. The rest have fled the recent Russian shelling that has killed at least 19 people. Those who remain say they won't leave, no matter what. (laughs) Oksana Pohorelova has stacked up bottles of filtered water in the corner of her cozy kitchen. The Russian strikes often cut off electricity and water. I actually work for the city's water utilities department. We stay at home now because we can't do our jobs. 
The Russians stole so much when they left. Our municipal vehicles, our equipment, laptops, even our servers and our databases. Everything. She sips hot tea with her colleague Svetlana Zaitseva and her father, Mikola Birokov. They predict that people will soon return to Kherson, despite the constant shelling and damaged infrastructure. Zaitseva brings up her daughter, who fled in August during the occupation, and is now trying to find work in a liberated Kherson. She has called me every morning and every evening since liberation, and every time she ends the conversation the same way. I want to come home. Birokov points out that supermarkets are reopening after replacing Russian goods with Ukrainian products. You see a lot of people waiting in long lines to buy Ukrainian products again. They check to see that milk is Ukrainian, that eggs are Ukrainian, because this is important for us. Making sure Kherson is firmly Ukrainian is especially important to city council member Oksana Pohomi. We meet at one of the few cafes still open here. During the occupation, she secretly helped Ukraine's security services investigate locals who collaborated with Russian authorities. You can support Russia, but not in Ukraine. If you want to do that, just go to Russia, move to Russia. Everyone in town knows Paholi, a grandmother with spiky, fire-red hair. She rages that Russian forces tortured and killed those who insisted on calling themselves Ukrainian patriots. She says she's stunned by how many locals turned on their neighbors and pledged allegiance to Russia. Like my former classmate who actually helped organize the Bogus referendum to become part of Russia. It was so shocking to me because she's a teacher of Ukrainian history. And when we removed the Russian flag after liberation, she said, well, don't do that because the Russians could come back. She says most collaborators have likely left for Russia or have been arrested, but suspicions remain. In a quiet neighborhood that looks largely abandoned, we spot the Ukrainian word for collaborator spray painted in blue on a gray metal gate leading to someone's house. Two neighbors argue outside the gate. They decline to give their names to NPR. A young woman insists the family living in the house worked closely with Russian soldiers, even repairing their vehicles. It's not true, an older woman shouts back. None of it is true. The woman who lives here is 87 and she can barely walk. The older woman pauses and then tries to rub off the spray paint. It cannot be erased, she says, and neither can the accusation. Joanna Kekesis, NPR News, Person. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition, our conversation with the mayor of Somerville about a project delayed for decades that finally gets rolling tomorrow morning, the new MBTA Green Line extension through Somerville into Medford.
Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, with state-of-the-art, fully-equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at LabShares.com. Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens' time in Lowell. Now through December 24th, MRT.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The Justice Department is confirming that a man it's charged in the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, is in U.S. custody. The DOJ says he is expected to make his initial appearance in federal court in Washington, D.C. The man is suspected of making the bomb that destroyed the plane. A winter storm warning remains in effect for the Sierra Nevada, where several feet of snow is expected in the upper elevations around Lake Tahoe by tomorrow morning. The storm is bringing rain to the California coast. And scientists say the eruption of Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano may end soon. They say lava output and volcanic gas emissions are greatly reduced. The alert level has been lowered. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A man suspected of making the bomb that destroyed Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, 34 years ago is now in U.S. custody. That's according to both American and Scottish authorities. 270 people died in that terror attack in 1988. NPR's Frank Langfitt joins us now from London with the latest. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Aisha. So what do we know about the arrest of this suspect? Well, we don't have an official word exactly from the Americans of where and how this occurred, but there have been reports that Libyan militia, a Libyan militia group, uh, kidnapped him, leading to speculation at the time that they would turn him over to the Americans, and now it's been confirmed he's in U.S. custody. His, the man is named Abu Aguila Mohammed Masoud Kir al-Marimi. He's a longtime member of Libyan intelligence services, and... Prosecutors say a breakthrough in the case came when Libyan authorities interviewed him and they gave the Americans the transcript. And according to the transcript, Massoud admitted to building the bomb. He confirmed that it was ordered by Libyan intelligence at the time and that the late leader Muammar Gaddafi thanked him and other people who were involved in the team that downed the airliner, thanked them for doing this. Uh, this bombing was 34 years ago. Uh, remind us of, of the details of this horrific tragedy. Yeah, Aisha, this was an enormous story at the time, and it was the biggest attack, terrorist attack on Americans until 9-11. And I just want to sort of set the scene, scene because it was around this time 34 years ago. It was four days before Christmas. 
And you have 270 passengers boarding a 747 at Heathrow, outside of London, uh, heading to New York. 190 of them are American. This includes includes college students heading home. 35 of those were for some for from Syracuse University. Now the plane gets up to 31,000 feet, and then this cassette player in the cargo hold it explodes. It has a time activated bomb inside. It blows a hole in the fuselage. Uh, and everybody on board is killed. And then there's falling wreckage over this small town in Scotland. And that ends up destroying 21 homes and killing 11 people on the ground. And the investigation has been going on for, for more than three decades then. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it, it was incredibly challenging. You know, the blast sent debris over 840 square miles. That's almost the entire width of Scotland. And investigators did more than 10,000 interviews. One of the big discoveries was there was a piece uh, of plastic about the size of a thumbnail that came from that cassette player that contained the bomb. Now, one Libyan man was brought to justice and sentenced to 27 years, but he was later diagnosed with cancer, and the Scottish government basically released him on humanitarian grounds. The U.S. was very unhappy with this, and that man died in Libya in 2012. So do we know what happens next? Well, the Department of Justice was in touch with uh, NPR's Ryan Lucas. Uh, he's been in touch with them, and they said that Massoud will make an initial appearance in U.S. District Court in Washington, and we're waiting to hear when and, uh, you know, under what circumstances they'll, that will be and what kind of public access, because even though this was a really long time ago, the families were terribly affected by this. They were, still want to see justice. And so I think that when this man comes into court, there's going to be tremendous interest in the, in the United States, but also here in the United Kingdom. That's NPR's Frank Langfitt. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to talk, Aisha. Conservationists are cooing over the arrival of a baby at a British zoo last week. Chester Zoo welcomed a rare Malayan taper, an endangered species that grows to be about the size of a small mule with a head resembling that of an anteater. Its young calves have a distinctive coat combining spots and stripes. Fewer than two and a half thousand of the creatures are estimated to remain across Southeast Asia. Experts say that hunting and the destruction of the animal's natural habitat in Malaysia, Thailand, and Myanmar have caused their numbers to sink by half in the past 40 years. The newborn at Chester Zoo has been named Nessa and weighed in at 20 pounds. One of the zookeepers told the BBC that the youngster was a real bundle of energy, but that her mother was keeping a watchful eye on her. A girl whose brother feeds on her blood. Robots that take revenge on their owner. And a bunny lamp with a deadly curse. Those are some of the bizarre, twisted plot lines in Cursed Bunny, Bora Chung's first collection of short stories to appear in English, which was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. It was translated from Korean by Anton Herr. Author Bora Chung joins us now to talk about her collection. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So you've described these stories as, quote, like a fairy tale, but with a little bit of a Korean twist. 
Can you talk about what that means? They definitely felt like fairy tales to me. Fairy tales, um, usually the European ones that we are kind of used to in the English speaking world has a certain way of plot development. And I really love that structure. So I try to use it um, whenever it seems fun. And I add uh, Korean reality, the things that I see or the things that I heard from somebody else. And with that kind of magical twist to it, and I hope that adds some fresh elements to the familiar structure. One of your stories also deals with like robots and artificial intelligence, which everyone is talking about these days. And you know, AI is advancing so quickly. Like, do you think that society is too dependent on technology? And also, do we mistreat the technology as we give it more and more lifelike responsibilities? Uh, From what I read, human beings really don't understand what we created. And artificial intelligence and deep learning, machine learning, all these things are structured so that the machine would accumulate experience and data and information and analyze them and draw conclusions more like human beings do. So that means um, our prejudices, our misconceptions, our own hate and misunderstanding and discrimination is part of the data human beings created. So technology is not impartial. Information is not neutral. And that is backfiring and that will backfire. But probably engineers don't agree with me. So yeah, I'm I'm afraid of machines. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's pretty much, it's the Frankenstein issue, right? Or yeah. Frankenstein's monster, right? Like you create something that you don't have any understanding of, and then it terrorizes you because it's dangerous to create things you don't understand, right? Or to play God. Um, It's less dangerous if you are aware that you're never going to understand this. I think Isaac Asimov said something to that effect. But as long as we believe that we are gods, that we've created this, so this thing will always listen to me and do as I say, then we are walking into deeper trouble. Yeah. Well, that definitely happened in that story. Um, You know, in a lot of your stories, I found the theme of women and the autonomy over their bodies and kind of like the horror and the tension that can come from not only just like what your body creates intentionally or unintentionally and the way society reacts to it. Like what what were you trying to get at with some of those stories? Well, I guess we're talking about the embodiment and i found the head too so the head is about creations and then embodiment is about a a girl who gets pregnant through her birth control somehow she gets pregnant and then it goes from there um for the record contraceptive pills do not make you pregnant contraceptive pills are safe they're good things (laughs) they Um, are safe they are safe they're good things but in this book yeah, it's just in my particularly perverted story, the person gets <laughs> pregnant. 
<laughs> so yeah, listen to your doctor. Um, yes. <laughs> well, when I was 28, I had an ovarian cyst and my period wouldn't stop. And I went to see a gynecologist. Well, I told my mom. And the first thing my mom said was, you're not married. You're not going to go see a gynecologist by yourself. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was 28 and I was bleeding for two weeks. I couldn't stand up. And the first thing my mom said was, no, you're not going to go see a doctor because you're not married. So that felt really strange, but that was very Asian. That was very, very Korean. And I think that stigma is still very well alive to this day, unfortunately. And my own doctor was very kind. She was very friendly <laughs> for the record. And I got a prescription and my ovarian cyst went away with time. But if you just refuse to go see a doctor, it could be very, very catastrophic. So this is something that is happening to your body. And it's like having a toothache. Nobody tells you you can't go see a dentist because you're not married. If you are alive and have functioning organs, then you should take care of that. It should be very simple. But because the question of pregnancy is that attached to it, society just dumps all kinds of weird meanings to your organs. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a story about it. But the thing I also thought was that men could decide whether they wanted to be a father or not, whereas the woman in this case who was pregnant just had to deal with it. I mean, um, you can get an abortion or whatever, but in this case, the woman was having the baby and she didn't have a choice in that. She couldn't decide whether she wanted to be pregnant or not in this story, right? Whereas the men were able to say, I don't know what I want to do, right? Yeah, and I wanted to skip that part about deciding whether to keep the baby or not because um, I wanted to talk about a woman having a baby alone. And in South Korea, there's a ridiculous amount of stigma attached to it, and the baby is discriminated the mo moment they're born. Um, their birth certificate has to say whether the parents are married or not. So I wanted to address that too. And that problem is very particular to Korea and only Korea, I really hope. Yeah, I think it's probably more than just Korea, but it is a big issue. Like being a single mother is a, is a big issue um, all over. Well, I mean, what do you hope that English readers will get from this book? You have a beautiful story in there uh, called The Reunion where you talk about, you know, what ties us to this world. What what do you hope will tie readers to this book? I have no idea. I never imagined my book would reach anywhere outside Korea. So th this is all very unreal to me. I feel like I'm in the middle of my own story and my own stories don't really have a happy ending. So I'm <laughs> probably in trouble. Um, I don't know. But this one will have a happy ending because this is a great book. This is a beautiful book. And I don't say that lightly. So this will have a good ending. Thank you. That was Bora Chung, author of the short story collection, Cursed Bunny. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and have fun with my bunny. Oh, I know that bunny is, woo, that bunny. I said, I mean, when he started chomping on the brain, I was like, yes. <laughs>
The holidays are a time to be merry. That means eating more, drinking more, and staying up late to celebrate. But all that merriment brings some risk. We do see a spike in heart attacks and strokes as we head into the holiday season. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, what causes these medical emergencies to increase and what to look out for? Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Trains start rolling tomorrow morning on the MBTA's Green Line extension through Somerville and into Medford. Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne calls this an historic moment for her city and also for the Commonwealth. Expanding public transit is helping us build a world-class public transit system. And that's vital because uh, we will be creating more of an equitable future, more jobs, uh, greater sustainability. And most importantly, our region needs this and they deserve it. And the new line also delivers on the environmental justice lawsuit that started uh, this whole thing to get cleaner air in our uh, neighborhoods that were impacted by the big dig. Let us know some other ways that the Green Line extension through Somerville will be affecting residents. It uh, addresses environmental justice, social justice, racial uh, justice. So access, you know, is certainly central to Somerville's economic competitiveness, our social progress, you know, any, uh, our agenda on climate action and the overall quality of uh, life. In terms of Somerville's climate action goals, how will the Green Line Extension interact with that? So Somerville's four square miles, the subway stops, the T stops that we're going to have in Somerville, nearly the entire city will be in within a 12-minute walk of a subway station that gives people the opportunity to get out of their house, walk, be healthier. We're all very excited and we're all thinking about uh, the next steps of how we can use our public ways in a way that allows people to move around safely and giving them healthier modes of uh, transportation. The Green Line already is affecting real estate prices in Somerville, particularly in Union Square in Somerville, where the Green Line extension branch uh, opened already earlier this year. In what specific ways are you approaching the problem of higher housing costs? 
I would like to highlight public transit doesn't cause gentrification and displacement. It's bad housing policy. It's a lack of affordable housing production and also exclusionary zoning. My administration has already taken steps to help mitigate against um, the expected gen gentrification around the newly opened T stops. And that includes increased affordability housing requirements, um, using zoning to allow density around the transit stops. We've also formed an Office of Housing Stability to help residents facing displacement. We've strengthened our condo conversion ordinance, you know, and there's many more uh, things that uh, we've done. What will you be doing tomorrow to mark the momentous occasion? My older daughter, who is now 26, spoke as an elementary school student at um, a public meeting in uh, 2005 to talk with the Secretary of Transportation at the time, Secretary Grabowskis. So she got up and she spoke and she said, um, she was a second grader and, and she said, I want to see clean air for my friends. Um, she was in a school called the Healy School that is near 93, and many of her friends had asthma. So she spoke, and, and then afterwards she said, Mama, she said, so when can I ride the train? And I said, well, maybe when you're in high school. She said, well, that's so long. And so on Monday morning, I am going to go with my 26-year-old. Uh, we are going to catch the first train uh, at the Tufts Medford branch at 4.45 a.m., and we're going to ride uh, it through Somerville. Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne. Somerville, Somerville, some, some, Somerville, 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 some, some, Somerville, 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 some, some, Somerville, Somerville. three close to the fear. The traffic's bad but not severe. Make fun of us, we'll kick you here in Somerville. No one famous comes to me and not Raymond Bork or Richie Gear, but Pee Wee Herman once was here in Somerville. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Culligan Water, since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Joseph Young of St. Cloud, Minnesota. He runs the website Puzzleria. I said, name a symbol or punctuation mark on a computer keyboard, anagram it to get the brand name of a product you might buy at a grocery in two words. The uh, symbol is the semicolon. You can rearrange those letters to get Molson Ice. Uh, a friend of mine points out you can also rearrange the letters to get a moonsickle. <laughs> okay. So this week's challenge, it really stumped listeners, though. Dan Pierce of Lincoln, Massachusetts, is one of fewer than 100 to guess correctly. Um, so he has truly earned the title of Puzzle Winner this week. Congratulations, Dan, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aisha. So I have to ask you, do you drink Molson ice? <laughs> to be honest, I, I saw the Molson. I wasn't 100% sure it was a product, but I looked it up <laughs> and there it was. <laughs> How long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I remember one of the first questions I heard dealt with Hurricane George, and I looked that up. That was uh, 24 years ago. Oh, my wow. gosh. Wow. What do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm, I'm retired, and I do do a lot of puzzles, but uh, my wife and I have three married children and uh, seven amazing grandchildren. That's a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. So, Dan, are you ready to play the puzzle? All right. Let's go. Take it away, Will. All right, Dan and Aisha. Every answer today is the name of a popular commercial game. Identify the games from their anagrams. For example, if I said Sir, S-I-R plus K, you would say risk. And we'll start small. Your first one is a coup. That's E-C-U plus L. E-C-U. Clue. Clue is right. Number two is Rosie. R-O-S-Y plus R. Sorry. Uh-huh. Boat. B-O-A-T plus O. Uh, taboo. Is that a game? Nice. Nice. Can't. C-A-N-T plus A. Can't A. Um. And this is a newer game since when I was growing up, but it used to be Settlers of Blank, oh, but Catan. now it's just Catan is right, C-A-T-A-N. Gene, J-E-A-N, plus G. Jenga. You got it. Globe, G-L-O-B-E, plus G. Boggle. That's it. That is my very favorite game. Love that. <laughs> Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S, plus T. Uh, twister. Oh, man, you're good. Upstream, U-P-S-T-R-E-A-M, upstream, plus O. Uh, mousetrap. Mousetrap. Ooh, you're good. <laughs> Olympiad, O-L-Y-M-P-I-A-D, plus C. Um, diplomacy, is that oh, a game? Oh, man. My goodness. <laughs> and here's your last one. Optician, O-P-T-I-C-I-A-N, plus R and Y. Uh, 
um, Pictionary. Pictionary. Oh I am my. impressed. <laughs> that was amazing, Dad. Like, how do you feel? Uh, I feel good. It's all right. <laughs> I bet you're feeling pretty good now. Yeah. <laughs> you ran away with that, so you should feel great. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Dan, what member station do you listen to? WBUR, but I also like to make a shout out to New Hampshire Public Radio because I often listen to them while I'm up that way. That's Dan Pierce of Lincoln, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you indeed. All right, Will, so what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Warren Bergman of Nina, Wisconsin. And listen carefully. Many people carry blank, a four-letter word, in a blank, five-letter word, to make blank, a nine-letter word. And you can rearrange the letters of the first two words, the four- and five-letter ones, to get the last word, the nine-letter one. What words are these? So again, many people carry blank in a blank to make blank. And you can rearrange the letters of the four- and five-letter words to get the nine-letter word. What words are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and the puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks, Aisha. Today would have been the 96th birthday of singer, songwriter, and drummer Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton. She died in 1984, and though not well recognized during her lifetime, Thornton helped shape the sound and swagger of rock and roll. She's now an inspiration for a new generation. Allison McCabe has the story. In 2000, a student project in Portland, Oregon, led to the formation of rock camps around the world, providing mentored opportunities for girls to learn all aspects of writing and performing music. Here in Brooklyn, Willie May Rock Camp was one of the first. Executive Director Lafrey-Ski says instruction starts with sounds in the kids' everyday lives. Their abuela turning on the oven in the morning to make tortillas or the sound of their father's keys in their pocket when he gets up to go to work and we bring that into music and we also teach them to listen to their voice within. That helps them develop the voice that they use outside in the world. Kids as young as five learn how to bang on the drums and shred on guitars, but also work with electronic instruments and music technology, like the synth samples and coding app that 10-year-old Una Wickens used to create a multimedia piece she calls Coronico. My sounds and my project, they're uh, synth sounds, and like when I couldn't find the right one, or like when I couldn't get something that I liked, uh, there were tons of people here to like support and help me. Willie May's year-round programming is offered at no cost to girls and gender-expansive youth, the majority of whom identify as BIPOC. As trailblazers, they're following in the footsteps of the real-life Willie May, says cultural anthropologist Maureen Mann. Willie May Thornton was born in Alabama, and at a very young age, 
She went out on the road as a blues singer. She was 14 years old when she left home, and she really never looked back. Along with Sister Rosetta Tharp and Laverne Baker, Thornton was one of the foremothers of rock and roll. When rock and roll was invented a few years after she got her first recording deal, she didn't affiliate herself with that form. She thought rock and roll was just the blues speeded up. But what's interesting is that the rock and rollers thought she was interesting. She kind of laid a template for a sound and an attitude. You Thornton recorded Hound Dog in 1952, four years before Elvis. And she wrote Ball and Chain, which became a big hit for Janis Joplin in 68. Mann says Thornton carried the torch of the blues while refusing to dim her light. A person who was just her own self, unapologetically so. The idea of self-expression is so crucial. Even when new styles emerged. Nona Hendricks was in her teens when she embarked on her musical career in the early 1960s. She says her first love was actually science. My older brother, he was a home-made mechanic, so he could take pretty much anything apart. It was a car or even like our television. And I would watch him investigating, looking into things, looking underneath things taking things apart and seeing what's inside. When her band The Bluebells morphed into LaBelle in the 70s, Hendrix grew curious about how her musical ideas could be translated into sound, the art and science of recording. A woman named Roberta Grace, who was the only woman engineer that I had come across, she began to show me how to work with the electronics that were underneath the board, how they were soldered together, how you would put together a mixing board. In her solo career, Hendrix has continued using technology to communicate and connect with audiences. But according to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, women are underrepresented as artists and songwriters and make up less than 3% of credited music producers. For women of color, that number is even lower. So that's why Willie Mae is so important that, you know, going there and seeing the young girls, taking toys apart and using the circuits within them to learn circuit bending. But it is really to graduate to where you're just dealing with frequencies and generating sound, turning that into rhythm, turning that into melodies, turning that into a beat, turning that into a song. Like nine-year-old Kendall Ryan's Earth Needs Help, which she composed on a synthesizer. When I first started playing around with it, I kept messing around with it, turning it to like the different sounds. The best thing about OMA is I get to mess around and find out. Some of these kids may go on to careers as artists, producers, and engineers, others in science and technology. Lefreski says the main goal is to nurture them as creators, laying the path for future sounds. I have always really felt that music can bring us together, build community, heal, and empower. I call what I do being an imaginationist. For NPR News, I'm Allison McCabe. The Nooksack tribe in Washington state is removing dozens of people from the tribe because it disputes their ancestral ties. The move could also force them out of tribal housing. Liliana Fowler from member station KNKX has more. 
The Nooksack tribe is based in Deming, Washington, just south of the Canadian border, surrounded by mountains and forest. Michelle Roberts is up early on this snowy morning, getting ready for a hearing in tribal court. The stakes are high. The hearing could determine whether Roberts gets to keep the home she's been living in for 15 years. But first, she has to attend to her father, Michael Roban. See, there's my dad now. <laughs> he lives across the street and could also be evicted. Hi, Daddy. <laughs> Rabang doesn't understand he could soon lose his home. At 80, he's living with dementia. But like his daughter, Rabang is among a group of people who the Nooksack says were mistakenly enrolled in the tribe. Robert says for more than 50 years she's thought of herself as Nooksack and just can't come to terms with the possibility of tribal disenrollment. I can't pack because that means I accepted it. And it's like, I'm not accepting it. I just can't. Altogether, Nooksack leadership is demanding that about 60 residents who've all been making payments on their houses under a federal low-income housing program leave their homes and tribal land. The tribal court hearing Roberts is attending on this day will determine whether she, her father, and aunt and uncle will be evicted. Ricky Armstrong is the attorney representing the tribe. At the hearing over Zoom, he tells the judge the reason the tribe is kicking these residents out is simple. They did not provide proof of enrollment with a federally recognized Indian tribe. Armstrong says properly enrolled Nooksack members need that housing. The three defendants herein are holding up the tribe from moving forward on a waiting list of 60 homeless Nooksack tribal member families. They've been doing this for over 10 years now. Over the years, Michelle Roberts and others have fought to keep their homes. They've appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court and even the United Nations. In November, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development told Nooksack leaders it had concerns Roberts and others were being denied a fair process. At the tribal court hearing, Roberts' aunt, Billy Rabang, says her family hasn't even been able to find a lawyer who's authorized to represent them in tribal court. The lack of legal representation has stunted us. Just, I mean, we can't, we don't understand what we're supposed to be doing. So Michelle Roberts testifies for herself and her family as best she can. Well, it takes a village to raise, to take care of our elders, and we all take care of each other here. That's why we're here to not only, you know, fighting for our identity, fighting for our houses, fighting for um, everything, anything that we can to, to stay together. Like other Nooksack members being threatened with eviction, Roberts and her family are both Filipino and Native American, or what some call Indipino. And they still treat them as second-class citizens. David Wilkins is a professor at the University of Richmond in Virginia who focuses on Native American issues. He says often tribal disenrollments happen due to fights over casino revenues, but he thinks discrimination is at play here. In the Nooksack situation, see there, that's where family squabbles and racism are the two major factors rather than money issues. Others in the community are concerned the tribe's actions could have long-term consequences. One of them is a neighbor of Michelle Roberts and her family, Hamish Jimmy. Sitting at a local restaurant, she says what's happening is unfair. And I don't think that we're going to be able to heal from this. It's a huge 
traumatic experience that's been going on for years. Jimmy says this whole ordeal has left many Nooksack, even those not being threatened with disenrollment, feeling like their land isn't home anymore. For NPR News, I'm Liliana Fowler in Deming, Washington. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. This is NPR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th. JArtsBoston.org. Some go on Airbnb to book their dream vacation on a secluded beach. Others fantasize about sleeping in DJ College shoe closet. Even if there were Jordans that you had never been able to see or even hear of, he has them in his collection. How one lucky sneakerhead got his kicks. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.